What a delightful evening it is to be assembled in the way that we are. It was mentioned already at the outset of our time tonight, and certainly we're thankful for the presence of each and every individual. Our membership at Pippin, we're certainly delighted that each of you are here, but also visitors that have come our way. We want you to know that you're our honored guests, and we're just delighted to have each and every individual that's here. Certainly as we continue to make thoughts and plans for that gospel meeting that is so swiftly approaching, in fact, two weeks from today, 14 short days, and that meeting will already be underway by this time. Please be praying earnestly for it. And in fact, the lesson tonight, hopefully again, will at least relate to it by helping us to appreciate the thinking, the approach, and that which should be the characteristic way that we look forward to this gospel meeting. Motivation of love. That's the title I've given to the lesson, as you can tell. And the opening three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 was the lesson text for tonight. These introductory remarks are those which I hope will simply set the wheels in motion for our lesson. Wouldn't you certainly be happy to agree that there's this four-letter word known as love, it occupies such a fantastic position, at least in the thinking of very, very many. I'm sure if you and I were to just think about the number of songs about love, the number of poems about love, the number of articles, the number of otherwise features of reference with relation to it, surely the number is astounding. Love, you see, most would readily realize as such a potent, such an important, and such a vibrant thing. And yet the Bible, as you and I know, also discusses it so very often. I would ask you to notice, 310 times in the King James Version at least, this Greek word love or some, some derivative of it, and every one of those occurrences seemingly have with it an appreciation that's so rich, so telling, so very moving. Tonight we're just going to look at the motivating aspects of it taken there from 1 Corinthians 13. But it would be an extensive study at least to look at all the various references to the subject of love. With all that said, why don't we get underway or begin by looking at this particular set of ideas. First of all, as we simply begin to put in our thinking a brief set of reminders, if you will, touching some of the key presentations of love, I would just like to begin with these. Isn't it true the Bible, in fact, places a demand on it? It's not as if it is something to be taken or left if one's going to please God at least. You and I could dip back into the ancient days of the Old Testament and note then that though that law was so very different in many ways in the Christian law, wasn't it true that even in it there was quite a reference to love? I would call to your attention in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, on that occasion when the greatest commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. Wasn't it true then, though that law of Moses was certainly in force, and though the considerations of it were so different in many ways than the details of our Christian law today, still wasn't it true, love for God was the paramount matter. It was the springboard from which all the others came. It's still a fascinating truth, isn't it, that when our Savior was asked that question by the scribe in Mark chapter 12, you may recall the scribe approached him and said, Master, what's the greatest commandment? 
Jesus, it seems, with no hesitation at all. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the greatest commandment. Isn't it still an amazing thing then that as Jesus quoted that, as He said it before that scribe, it was as challenging then and as marvelous then as it was when that text of Deuteronomy 6 had been presented from which Jesus quoted love for God. But that isn't the only object, of course, of our love. Look at the next one. And it's still also true that embedded in the heart of that Old Testament, although it might have been easy to overlook it, what about the love for one's neighbor? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Drawn exactly from Leviticus 19 verse 18. In the heart of that book detailing the duties and obligations of the tribe of Levi and the experiences of the remainder of the children of Israel. Love for one's neighbor. It was important for the children of Israel in their sojourn through life not to look on neighbors as mere objects or with a careless and inconsiderate matter. They were to love them. And yet when Jesus in that same passage in Mark chapter 12 spoke about the greatest commandment, the scribe didn't even ask about it, but Jesus went on and said, The second is like to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You and I remember, of course, in Luke's account of Luke chapter 10, a fantastic question had been asked by a lawyer, and ultimately in that, who is my neighbor? And the Lord, of course, told that which you and I recognize as the Good Samaritan and related the features of a priest and a Levite and finally a Samaritan who, in fact, did forth these marvelous acts of kindness and consideration and love. Who is my neighbor? It's anybody who I have the capability to offer aid and assistance to. Maybe in light of them, that brings us to the last one. Isn't it true also that in consideration of love, we're told that we should develop within ourselves a brotherly love? I would ask you to think about that text in 2 Peter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7. As Peter opened that epistle that goes by that name, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That reading of verses 5 through 11 of that chapter at least brings to our mind the last two of those Christian graces. Brotherly love, that brotherly kindness mentioned on that occasion, that literally means love of the brethren. We're excited here at Pippin, of course, to lift high the importance and the banner of brotherly love. The love for one another, even as much as we so powerfully think of the obligation that's ours from Romans chapter 12. We rejoice with those that rejoice. We weep with those that weep. We are there, in fact, to send forth the blessed light of God's countenance through love in the aspects of the way in which we lift high one another. Maybe in light of those things, let's come 
to the following statements on that slide as well. We know that in as much as we've described love so far, we each know too that it emanates and flows wonderfully from the nature of God Himself. God doesn't ask anything of us that He Himself has not already manifested and exhibited. In 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And hence, if you and I then refuse to love one another, we exactly then distanced ourselves from what God is because He is love. So far then in contemplation of the love of God, as exquisite, as far-reaching, as beautiful as that is, there are some very realistic and concrete ways that that love is set before us, and so it is at the bottom. Think about some of the ways you and I sing about it. I only chose four very quick numbers, but so many other hymns in that songbook might at least have been mentioned. Song number 473. As you and I think about the wording of a song like that one, Oh, how I love Jesus. When you and I sing that, we can sing it with such fervor and such enthusiasm. Oh, how I love Jesus. And that love is manifested in your heart and your life and mine. What about song number 287? Again, the title alone is sufficient. I love the Lord because He has first loved me. You and I lift high then as we sing about a song like that, the very attribute of Scripture. In 1 John chapter 4, just as surely as it's highlighted, we love Him because He first loved us. What about song number 846? Far over near the back of our book. In fact, much of that's a direct quotation of that text we just noted a moment ago. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. That song has become a very favorite one to Denise and myself and our family, especially as you listen to that one sung with various four-part harmony. It almost brings a tear to your eye. What about song number 855, just nine pages forward, nine songs forward? The wording there, God's family. Many have commented how that, that song holds a very special note and a very special message in it. God's family and a part of the lyrics in it is the love that we commonly and communally share. To think about love in all these various ways does proceed to bring us pretty swiftly to a few additional thoughts about it. I'm sure all of us would readily agree that there are many noble virtues many noble attributes with which a Christian should be descriptive. There's honesty, there's nobility in thought, characteristic trueness in terms of purpose and description of life. I would ask you to notice that in amongst all of them, you and I can come to the middle of that slide and note this. It continues to be a very compelling thing that the Bible lifts high this attribute of love in the following way. As great as all of those attributes are, love excels them. I would call to your attention 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. The closing verse of that 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The setting alone might be somewhat important to us to notice. As chapter 12 of that epistle begins... Paul wrestles along with the Corinthian brethren trying to encourage them 
to appreciate the truth of the spiritual gifts, the understanding of how they're to use them, the motivation by which they're to be used, and the blessed benefit that they're to bring. And you and I know well that those miraculous gifts were in many ways extraordinarily special. But sadly, it was possible for mankind to abuse them, to misuse them, to misappropriate them. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians were the Holy Spirit's attempt to help them understand the right way to use the spiritual gifts. The closing verse to chapter 12 puts it like this. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. I would think all of us would be quick to appreciate. It would be great to be able to speak in a tongue. It would be great to have supernatural wisdom or knowledge. It would be fantastic to be able to interpret a tongue. And you can go on down the list. Wouldn't it be great to be able to miraculously heal somebody? What if the Holy Spirit through the apostles had laid hands upon you and you or I had the capability to help somebody sick to get better? To lay hands on them. Now you and I remember that as various and sundry gifts like that were shared, they truly were great. But did you notice the last statement of verse 31? I show unto you a more excellent way. There is something more excellent than them. There is something superior to them. There is something truly fantastic. Chapter number 13 of 1 Corinthians will set that before us. You and I already know what the answer is. Paul, we're eager to know what is more excellent than any of these gifts. What is more fantastic? What's more compelling? What's more redounding unto the great glory of God than them? As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, you notice that beginning in verse number 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, there is a beautiful operational definition for what you and I call love. Denise and I yesterday attended a wedding ceremony and the preachers, a part of it, read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8a. I'd like to do the same this evening. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Charity, or rather verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Now pausing at that point, you notice with me, there has been an amazing set of descriptives of love. I used, of course, the King James translation, and the word charity appears there. That's nothing but the Greek word agape. That's the word love. And as this particular word has been presented, no one surely would argue the fantastic and innate greatness that attaches to it. It has all of these characteristics. Love doesn't behave itself unseemly. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love doesn't rejoice in what's evil either. Love is kind. Love, as you noticed, is patient. Love suffers long. 
when the characteristic matters of men have long since run out, when love is present, it will nonetheless hope for that which is greater because after all, the last verse had told us love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It bears all things. Maybe it is in light of that. You'll notice at the bottom, in light of those definitions, wouldn't we be quick to say love is not merely an emotion. It is not merely an emotion. It is an activating force. The motivation that it provides is truly a beautiful thing. Maybe you'll notice these verses with me as we think about some other passages that we'll use in a moment at least. That text in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Notice there, love manifests itself in obedience. Love, you see, is an imperative thing. With it, there comes obedience. Notice, love is not just a passive emotion. It demonstrates itself in the actions of the individual. And Jesus Himself said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. One can rail all he likes against commandment keeping and the matter of obedience, but no matter what you say, if you don't obey, you don't love Jesus. That's the logical consequence of what He said. One chapter later in John 15, 14, you notice there it was attached to being his friend. You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. As you and I think about those matters, isn't it fantastic to consider the way in which love shows itself? One by one as we build these considerations, it brings us also to the next slide where the question becomes rather personal for me and as well as for you. Why do I do the things that I do, especially in the name of religion? Why do you do the things that you do, especially in the name of religion? I chose to start that slide by noting, and it's certainly no strange or unusual matter to any of us to contemplate how many things are done in our world in the name of religion. There are individuals who extensively visit those who are downtrodden, those who are sick, those who are bereft of physical blessings. There are others who, of course, have food pantries, and they do an extensive amount of giving in terms of physical necessities. There are others, of course, who have done a great deal of effort to distribute Bibles around our world. The list, of course, could quickly proceed to any number of other things. Secondly, I would ask you to consider there are untold numbers of mission works around our globe that are maintained in the name of religion. I don't know how many countries around the world, but I suppose there probably aren't that many that do not have some kind of mission program going on in its midst, the effort of which is to send forth some message from the love of God into that place. On the other hand, there's evangelism here. Not far distant from our place, you and I know that there is a powerful motivation for love. One more time, could we come to the bottom? What about the church services that we maintain here at the Pippin Congregation? When we meet three and four times a week for Bible studies and worship periods, why do we do this? What about the other works that we maintain? The radio program. Sometimes a great deal of effort goes into the works that various and sundry individuals around our congregation do. Why do we do this? What's the reason for it? 
we all know and we've been brought up to appreciate that we need to have, of course, proper reasons for doing things tonight. Let's use the remainder of the time that we have to reflect from the bottom of that slide onward about some of the features that Paul used to instruct the church in Corinth. As you come to those thoughts with me, I might submit maybe any number of supposed answers and reasons and at least considerations might be given. Perhaps some would say, the church is a nice social place. I enjoy going there and, I, I, and I'm excited about maintaining it because it makes me in good standing with my business colleagues. Maybe others would say, I appreciate the opportunity that's there because it's, it allowed me to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Or it allows me to maintain proper connections to the community. Maybe others would say, as I've tried to ask you to notice with me, I feel like it's a place of respect. I feel like that which takes place there at least emboldens my person such that I'm a better individual. Those lists could go on and on. May I say, if our reasons go no deeper than any of them I've mentioned, if they delve no deeper than that, we have a serious problem. It is in that regard, could I invite you to turn again to chapter 13. The very next verse after the one we read earlier, verse number 31 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Paul, what is this more excellent way? Verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You might appreciate taking these perhaps a little bit slowly, one at a time. Why don't we pause and ask this? Verse number 1 has made mention, tongues of men. Now remember, there were those at that day and time who had the capability of speaking in tongues. They could speak in languages that they had never studied or learned. Not a one of us would question the potential utility of that kind of gift. Wouldn't you like to be able to travel to Russia and preach in the language immediately that they could understand and know? I think many of us would appreciate the opportunity that's in that. Paul was quick to say this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, even if I could speak angelic language, Paul said, if I don't do it motivated with love, if I don't do it motivated with charity, he concluded the verse by saying, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. The message in its finality, in terms of the opportunity for consideration for benefit to me, it is as empty as if I were doing nothing but, but clanging a gong. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? We're so blessed here with men and they are motivated by love for souls and they're motivated by the individuals and when a man climbs into this pulpit and he preaches the truth... He does it because he's motivated by the love of those in this audience and the love he has for the truth. He's not doing this. He's not teaching a Bible class. He's not engaging in the other activities just so that he might be complimented or that our church by that nature could be complimented. And that kind of characteristic goes with all of us, doesn't it? We're in this business because we are motivated by love. And you as men and women and we as the Pippin Church... Paul said in this opening verse, 
even if we proclaim some kind of message or teaching, if it isn't motivated by love, you'll notice the sad description that closed verse number 1. But let's go even further than that. Verse number 2. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, four things have been listed so far. Notice them with me again, please. The gift of prophecy. Do you and I remember the great labor and work of those Old Testament prophets? You and I have no doubt often thought about Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Habakkuk and Haggai and the others. Oh, what stalwart defenders of the faith they were. Great men of faith. Read on and understand all mysteries. You and I know that it has always been so that there are things of God that are beyond our capability. The secret things do belong to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. We know that while we're in this flesh, there will be appreciations for which we may not have all the answers to everything we wish. We have the truth to be sure. But there are things about science that I'm looking forward to asking God. Why He organized and orchestrated it the way He did. But you'll know here, He says, if I understood all mysteries, what's more? And all knowledge. Are there things you don't know? Are there things that you appreciate that you wish you knew more about? Paul said if we had all faith and understood all mysteries and had all knowledge and furthermore had the gift of prophecy. Let's close the verse. So that I could remove mountains and have not charity. If I intend to use these capabilities but not motivated by love, not prompted by, set forth with, love, he says, I am nothing. Now that's a somewhat stark statement, isn't it? You'll notice then that these spiritual gifts that the church in Corinth had, even they were to have been motivated by the attribute of love and the consideration for the souls of men. They were not to be used just as matters of personal import or matters to otherwise benefit the individual. That was never in the mind of God. Their purpose was to have been motivated by love. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, Talk about benevolence. What if an individual sold everything he had? Everything, including even down to the most bare considerations and left himself with nothing but the most minimal amount of clothing. If I sold it all and gave it to the poor. Verse 3. What if I give my body to be burned? Have you ever seen on the television these individuals in the Middle East who, quite frankly, are more than just fanatics? They'll take some flammable liquid, pour it on themselves, and light themselves afire and burn themselves to death in the name of their religion. Paul said, even if I did that, if it isn't motivated by love, let's see how much it profits. Verse 3, And have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. You and I certainly are so sad for those who are so deceived that they would do that. They're so motivated by the consideration of this falsehood that attaches to the doctrine that's theirs. And yet, they think that by doing this, they're going to leave this earth and go to a place that's far purer and far more comfortable. And yet, the moment after death, they realize they've made an eternal mistake. But may we say, at least in this life, 
we have so far appreciated, have we not, this evening. Paul has lifted incredibly highly the motivation of love in the first three verses. What motivates you and me tonight? Why do you come to services? Why do I come? Why do you share the message of Jesus with somebody else? Why do you send a card to those to somebody that's sick? Why do we advertise and invite others to come to our meeting here in a couple of weeks? We're doing it because of love, isn't it? We love the souls of men and women. We love the souls of boys and girls. And we know that apart from Jesus, they're lost if they've reached the age of accountability. And so that's why we do this. That's why we're prompted by in the Word of God, isn't it? You notice in the verses that follow, Paul then again, as we read earlier, defined this love and the characteristic motivation of it. How that it isn't motivated by what's evil and it isn't motivated by what's impure. But you'll notice what a great motivation it is. I would ask you to think as we come to the bottom. In the middle part of that, in Galatians 5 verse 6, what about your faith and mine? Paul said, that which works in the sight of God is faith that works by love. Is your faith in mind then, is it working daily because of love? Love for God, love for Christ, love for souls? I know that it is. It's that way for all of us, isn't it? May we ever keep the flames of love burning brightly within us and let that be the motivation we look forward to coming on Sunday mornings because we love the Lord. And I want to be where He is, and I want to be where His people are. And I want to glorify Him by worship, and I want to study His Word. Does that characterize you and me? It should. I come on Wednesday nights because I want to be nowhere else than there. That's where the truth of God is. That's where the pillar and ground of the truth, that's where those folks meet. And I want to be there too on Sunday night. Even if perhaps the day has been a bit tiring and weary, that won't stop us. We'll be there because, again, if Christ loved me enough to die on the cross for me, shouldn't my love for Him carry me through perhaps a little bit of tiredness to be there where His people meet? If Christ went to the cross for me, can't I endure a little for Him? That's what love does, isn't it? You'll notice in Ephesians 4.15, even in light of when Bible classes and other opportunities like that arise, speak the truth in love. When you and I share the message of Jesus with someone, we hand them a flyer and urge them to come to our meeting and so kindly and beautifully invite them. We do that because we care about them. They're an immortal soul like we are. And apart from Jesus, they're lost. And we want them to come. And Jeremiah is going to have messages. You may have looked at the flyer and noticed they're going to be related to the family and related to how the blessedness of that family is presented. And the lessons, no doubt, will be very invigorating and very enriching. You and I certainly will be blessed. And we want others to know that too. Motivated by love. No wonder as you come to the bottom. We've already highlighted verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. Here was the great apostle who himself had endured so much for Jesus. And yet, he said that if I'm not doing this motivated by love, it doesn't profit me anything. That's a shocking statement again in some ways. But doesn't it remind us that God looks upon things different than we do? 
You and I know there is a narrow way that leads into life, and few there be that find it. And Jude reminds us, snatch them out of the fire. Jude verses 20 and 21. We know that there's a fire waiting the disobedient and the fire of hell that awaits those who are unprepared and unready. And you and I have the precious privilege of snatching them out of that fire using the gospel motivated by love. That's been our subject tonight, the motivation that's provided by. May that love always be such a powerful and remarkable thing within you and me because it sets us apart, of course, from those with whom we so often live and work in this world. In conclusion, could we at least say this? The New Testament does lift love to an extraordinarily special and superior place. Love is the more excellent way. Love is that which is described in 1 Corinthians 13. It's better than any of the spiritual gifts that were miraculous in nature. Don't you feel a bit blessed at this moment in time? You and your attribute of love for God through Christ in the attributes of our study tonight occupy a place that's finer and richer than even those who had the spiritual gifts, those miraculous ones. Isn't the church a great place? The church is truly the ones who are saved, Acts 2.47. Those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 20.15. And it's those, of course, who appreciate the message of Revelation 22, verse 15. In that place we read, Blessed are they that do His commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Oh, what motivation there is of love. I'm sure we would be a bit remiss not to close our lesson with the closing verse of 1 Corinthians 13. We all know that there's three great things Paul listed there, faith, hope, and love. And yet, as great as faith is and as great as hope is, and no one would question them, he said the greatest of these is love. It will be the motivation providing the other two. When you and I live a life that's predicated upon faith, or rather predicated upon love, it'll be a love as we've already learned that will be obedient. And that obedience will then of course show itself in the fullness of our faith, Hebrews 11 verse 6. And of course that hope that comes along with it will be a hope that it is of course of eternal life, 1 John 2 25. Tonight, then, what might we say? What about your motivation for service to the Master? And what about mine? What about the things that we do? May we never allow them to be anything other than our love for Him as we show forth our love for the souls of individuals. This evening, it might be that there's someone in the audience, one or more, that at this point is distant from God. Maybe you've never become a Christian when you see the cross, think about the love that God had for you. Don't you want to reciprocate that to Him? After all, He first loved us, 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. Tonight, don't you want to show that love for Him by obeying His Word? Believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God, and be baptized. If you have taken care of that, but perhaps distantly in the past and no longer is the flame of love burning brightly. Maybe you have fallen into a habit. Church services have been nothing more than a ritual. That needs to change. If that circumstance is a private one, go to God in prayer in private. That's what the New Testament teaches us. But if it's been a public matter, you need to come before these brethren here tonight. Ask for their prayers to God on your behalf. 
And not only that, make confession of those faults, and we are assured, confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5.16. Tonight, if we could in fact assist you in that way, that love may be rekindled within you, do it at once, even as we stand together in saying.